Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast Thursday live stream edition back from here and there and everywhere. It is episode 127, which I'm just going to guess is prime. It is. All right. I knew that it was prime because we checked just before going on. But nonetheless, it remains prime whether I cheated or not. It's it's true. It's true. Um, so it's been a while since we've been here. We're going to be here today. No Q&A today. And then we're going to come back to you in, in less than two days, actually, on Saturday at our normal time. And uh, joined then, perhaps as well, by our our smallest panther, Tesla. Uh, and um, we'll be coming back to you on Saturdays for uh, for a bit after a lot of strange scheduling. Um, announcements, I guess. It's, yes. Um, what do we got? Well, um, our... Our private Q&A, also our, our private Q&A, which you can access at my Patreon, is this Sunday. So we're doing this right now on Thursday. We're going to have another live stream uh, along with a public Q&A on Saturday and then on Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific, there'll be a private Q&A. So if you're interested in that, you can join us there at my Patreon. Find the link there. Um, boy, there's just a lot of other things to say, but maybe maybe we'll... They'll, maybe they'll happen in line. Maybe they'll happen, they'll happen in, in line. line. I will say, um, don't hesitate to spread the word. Check and see whether you're still subscribed. We see a lot of funny business on this channel. And, um, you know, frankly, I think it suggests that uh, Goliath may have wised up and decided to do some uh, some subtler things. So anyway, subtler. subtler um, so anyway, it's worth checking checking whether you're still subscribed and, um, you know, doing all the things you might to, to help us out algorithm-wise. Yeah. Um, we, we appreciate all of it. We appreciate your support by uh, showing up and listening. The the, the wonderful uh, fan mail that we receive, um, both, you know, through email and through letters and just being stopped in the street, honestly, uh, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, but also subscribing to this channel, to the Clips channel, liking the videos you like, sharing them. And of course, if you have the wherewithal and, um, and interest in supporting us financially, if you can, um, through, for instance, Patreon. Um, but also the, um, the much of the way that we are supporting, uh, this work right here is through our sponsors, whom we are very grateful to and for, and, and we, at. and at and with with we are grateful with them yes. for all of the wonderful bounty that is this earth that we share <laughs> well i think that was pretty good for on the spot Abs absolutely yeah. absolutely um a tesla you didn't say amen though tesla is nonplussed no i think he's plus i was just gonna say i've never seen him plus never seen you plus never seen anyone plus honestly i know it's it's yeah. uh and it may be that it's a, a flammable inflammable situation where they both just mean the same thing it sounds better with the prefix yeah um but i don't i don't know what plus is yeah, I don't either. Yeah. I've been minus a few times. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. No, yeah. that's kind of that's your want, <laughs> <laughs> not what you want. Right. It's your want. Yeah, I almost got minus over a uh, a pre takeoff tweet, mm. which I did not realize was going to be at all controversial. Well, I think uh, I think pre takeoff tweets are just setting yourself up for those those who would imagine that they now have many many hours, depending on in this case it was a transatlantic flight, uh, to which they didn't know presumably, uh, to you know to really to really get in there. It was a transcendental flight. Was it? Yes, you didn't I mention that to me. How are you? How are you transformed? Uh, I well, I came back the other direction, so you know it's, it's not, a reversible not, not reaction. Mm -hmm. And chemically speaking, I am what I was before, but. I wasn't in the intro. In so many ways, not what that means. 
Okay, but do they know that? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Uh, so, yeah, we are um, very discriminating in the sponsors that we Easy. accept. It is the fifth anniversary plus a few days of us being accused of that exact thing. We are discriminating and we are discerning about <laughs> ah, which better. sponsors uh, we, we accept. And actually, speaking of the fifth anniversary of Evergreen, like maybe we should talk about some about that today. Um, there are two things before we get into our, our three ads for the hour. Um, you did a five-year anniversary conversation with Benjamin Boyce, uh, who was also on the ground um, during, during the events there. We came to know him um, a week or two afterwards. We'd never met him before Evergreen blew up. I became aware of him during what must have been his first or maybe just first or second broadcast from the library, which he did in portrait <laughs> Because everybody else from Evergreen who filmed the damn thing did it in portrait, so it became like... So a, he did it landscape, you mean? He No, he did it portrait just to be in keeping with everybody else's terrible video technique. So uh, how did that di how did that discriminate him from the others? It didn't. That was him fitting in and then him saying things that were true is what separated him. I see. Yeah. Uh, I see. Uh, yeah, well, I first came to know um, Benjamin, and I thought at the time you had indicated to me that this was, this was news to you as well, that... Um, he was one of the 17 people, 17 students at the time who signed the letter saying, you know, what the fuck is going on here? Excuse me. But, you know, like, hello, Evergreen administration and faculty and students and all y'alls. Uh, this is insane. And this is not what we stand for. And uh, those I and I that letter went out and I figured out we didn't know any of them. Those were none of those were our students. Um, and I figured out um, who most of them were. Uh, through channels that were then available to us as Evergreen faculty and wrote a letter to all of them and uh, and asked anyone who knew the couple that who I couldn't find um, to spread it. And Benjamin was one of the ones I had found and he wrote back and, and you know, so a, a friendship was born. You know, yep. He was he was really, you know, extraordinary from the beginning. Um, I so had, anyway, I had completely forgotten that he was a signatory to that letter, but oh, yeah. I at least became aware of him from his library broadcast, which is pretty cool. It's worth going back and looking at. Um, to see what it looked like for a, um, a a recent grad, I guess, to be, or was he just on the verge of graduating? Yeah, no, he was not graduated yet. He was... <laughs> it had been the week before or something? No, I mean, graduation happened three or four weeks afterwards, right? This was, that, that whole thing happened in like week seven of a 10-week quarter, week no, eight. It was, it was it was eight or nine. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was right at the end of the quarter. I know that because Bob Woodson offered to come out mm -hmm. And uh, stand shoulder to shoulder with us. Which would have been eval week, but that was several weeks later. Yeah, and it wasn't clear that there would have been anything to. So I've actually just written about some of this, which is the other thing that we were going that I just wanted to mention as the as the anniversary. God, there's a lot of fur, or dust, yep, or birds in the air, or that's something. Fine. Um, <clears throat> um, so my natural selections uh, post for this week is about the five-year anniversary. And one of the things I mentioned, I didn't mention him by name because I didn't have time before I wrote it to, to say who it was. But I, but I say in there, a civil rights activist who had marched with King had reached out to you and said, I would like for myself and to bring a few other of my, of my civil rights activist buddies to come and march on the Evergreen campus with you and Heather. And um, and we were considering it, and then violence emerged anew. Uh, basically, when um, I, I think it was when uh, the Patriot Prayer Group came, and they did not bring any violence to campus, but there was uh, violence around them that was made to look like it was them. Uh, so, 
uh, we had to say there's there's no there's no way to to march on campus at this point. All right, um, maybe we should move on to paying the rent, and okay. then uh, we can either return to Evergreen or we can um, move on to other topics. Okay. All, All right. right. I guess I'm number one. Yes, you are. This might be the first time that's happened. Nope. <laughs> All right. This is not the first time I've been the first one in the queue, but it's been a while, right? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, our first sponsor this week is Moink, M-O-I-N-K. 97% of the chickens served in the U.S. are dipped in chlorine. This is because Big Ag doesn't have the same quality standards as the family farm. An eighth generation farmer founded Moink. That's moo plus oink. Wow. Yes, I knew that, but I had forgotten. Uh, so you can help save the family farm and get access to the highest quality meat on earth. Moink delivers grass-fed, grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door. Moink farmers farm like your grandparents did. Well, not my grandparents, but probably your grandparents. My, grandpa my grandparents. Your grandparents. Mm-hmm. My grandparents did farm. Even your, your, your dad for a time. Well, he um, was a child. Yes, well, he was still farming. It counts. He, he left as soon as he could. Uh, as a result, Moink uh, meat tastes like it should, which is to say delicious. Unlike the supermarket, Moink gives you total control over the quality and source of your food. You should choose the meat delivered in every box, like ribeyes to chicken breasts to pork chops to salmon fillets and much more. I'm going to interrupt for a second. Yep. Um, while you were gone um, this last week, the boys and I had a um, flank steak from Moink, and it was spec. Spectacular. It was spectacular. It was spectacular. I'll just add that in here. All right. Yeah, that's all. Um, I hear there was a flank steak had while I was gone that was spectacular. Was it spectacular, Zach? To me, this is hearsay, but I, I believe it. It was, actually. See? All right. Well, mm -hmm. There's testimonials going on all over the This is what happens when you leave. Yeah, well. We have spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> we we sit around giving testimonials. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Uh, could you film that next time? Because I'm not quite sure what that would mean. All right. Um. We love everything about Moink. The fact that the meat is grass-fed and finished on small farms, the lovely publications that come along with it, and, of course, the meat itself. Uh, Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he had ever tasted. We agree. It is amazing. And Keep the flank steak. And the flank steak. Yeah. I mean, the bacon. But the flank steak. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, keep American farming going by signing up at the moinkbox.com slash darkhorse right now, and listeners of this show will receive free filet mignon for a year. That's one year of the best filet mignon you've ever tasted, but for a limited time. Spelled moink, M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash darkhorse. That's moinkbox.com slash darkhorse. And I have a retraction to make. Uh-oh. Um, no, no, not really. Just... Um, my father's father, who was the farm, the main farmer and the farm owner uh, in Northeast Iowa, where my father grew up, along with his siblings and his and his his parents didn't grow up there. Um, my father's father encouraged all of his children to leave the farm because he he saw what, as it turns out, was largely true, at least in that part of Iowa, which was an increasing sort of corporatization of, of farmlands. And at this point, it's all, you know, giant, I think, largely pig farms at this point. And they, they were raising cows and and pigs and chickens and vegetables and, um, and you know, all sorts of things. But um, my father 
uh, became a computer engineer, and I think it was absolutely the right move. He was he was a, a much more much more of a natural as a computer engineer uh, than as a farmer. But uh, he used to call himself a little country programmer uh, <laughs> when he first he went to Notre Dame and then to Pittsburgh and then L.A., which is uh, where where I knew him most. Yeah, and became a code farmer. A code farmer. <laughs> All right, our second sponsor of. Uh, and he, I'm sure, so he's he's gone now, but I am certain that he would love the food from what, because he was always a fan of excellent, excellent meat, uh, well-raised, carefully raised, and Moink is that. Okay, our second sponsor of the, the cat is trying to eat the second sponsor. Um, our second sponsor is Brightmove. Brightmove is modern recruiting software, otherwise known as an applicant tracking system, or ATS. If you work in a staffing company, an RPO company, or an HR department, you know exactly what an ATS is. And if you're not using Brightmove, you are missing out on the opportunity to make more placements and hires. Brightmove is a bit of an odd sponsor for us, since we don't have any reason to use the product ourselves. We are proud to be sponsored by Brightmove, Brightmove, however, since it was founded in 2004 by the current CEO, David Webb. Brett's experience with David was that during UND 2020, he showed up to volunteer, took on a great deal of responsibility and initiative in planning and crafting the technical aspects of the Ranked Choice Voting Platform, and all of that was fantastic, and he was terrific to work with. So Brightmove's co-founder is mission-aligned with Dark Horse, but what makes Brightmove the ATS vendor for you? They have new software features released every three weeks. The Brightmove user base, who are recruiters and hiring executives themselves, are the ones requesting new features. Tech support is 100% US-based and wins customer service awards every year. Recruiting analytics are unique. And drag and drop candidate cards through your hiring workflow with, our, with their Kanban-style dashboard. For RPO companies, there are additional features that no other recruiting software can give you. A single login for your company and all customer instances, a global candidate pool to feed all downstream hiring pipelines, data segregation for compliance and security, per RPO customer security roles for your team, and metrics reporting across all customers. And Brightmove includes IP security and two-factor authentication on all of its offerings to ensure peace of mind for business owners and legal teams. So if you use a service like Indeed or ZipRecruiter, Brightmove can supercharge your hiring by feeding all new jobs to your internet job boards and then managing the influx of applicants, helping you filter and sort down to the best list of people possible. You have to see for yourself why Brightmove is the best applicant tracking system you have never heard of until now. Visit brightmove.com slash darkhorse to schedule a software demonstration today. If you become a customer, you will receive one month of free service, depending on your company size and software package. That is a savings of between $1,000 and $3,000. So visit brightmove.com slash darkhorse today. That's B-R-I-G-H-T-M-O-V-E dot com slash darkhorse. And finally, our third sponsor this week is Vivo Barefoot, shoes made for feet. Not for cat's feet. You can only see the back of him at the moment, and now you can't see him at all. But for people feet. You're going to get in trouble if you're going to have to list all the things that Vivo Barefoot are not for. Well, he's sitting here. Oh, okay. He's, he's looking in need. Not so much of an applicant tracking system, but maybe of shoes. I see. You I don't know. want to confuse him. I didn't write. Exactly. It's very important. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of what feet should be and be constrained by, but Vivo's, Vivo Barefoot's, are made by people who know feet. These shoes are a revelation. We love them. They're beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing. They cause no pain because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They're fantastic. Our feet are the products of millions of years of evolution, and so are yours. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot. But modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis, one in which people move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. 
Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. The number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. Once people start, start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. It has a great range of footwear for kids and adults, and for every activity, from hiking to training to everyday wear. They're certified B Corp, pioneering regenerative business principles, and their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild in it. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive offer of 20% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash darkhorse. So I was... um at this conference, which we will come back to, uh, at this conference, and uh, I was uh, sitting in the audience trying to glean something from this panel before my panel, and somebody says, uh, Dr. Weinstein, it's, uh, it's very good to meet you, but I I thought you'd be wearing Vivos. <laughs> what <laughs> were you wearing? The zone. Uh, I had conference Your wear. conference shoes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did have conference shoes on at the time. Oh. Anyway, it, it wasn't. And, and I'll bet your feet weren't nearly as comfortable as they would have been no, had you had on Vivos. No, they weren't, but I was unlikely to get canceled over conference shoes. That's what they're for. Not being canceled? Right, I think so. Yes, it I, suggests a certain I, willingness to participate mm-hmm. in polite society, that sort well, of thing. Well, but I mean, so you have a hypothesis about neckties. Yes, I do. And I feel like conference shoes may similarly be sort of a, a handicapping. A like, yeah, you can't no really, you can't really run away that fast wearing conference shoes, and much less in the idiot shoes that women are supposed to be wearing, which some of us just won't. But um, you know, the shoes that you cannot actually make a make a run for it in, not not totally savvy shoes. Yeah, th- there is something to the idea. I mean, just the whole idea of a, you know, a slick sole and a kind of a confining, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. it's not it's not the best design for a shoe, so it's interesting how uh, how dominant it is amongst the uh, the power players. Yes. Um yeah, I I've always kind of imagined that that was a matter of constraining you down to something so similar to everybody else's shoes that we can figure out how much you spent on them, you know, that kind of thing, how long it's been since you've refreshed them, mm. right? And that is a way of telling who, you know, what the hierarchy is, economically speaking. That's really? what I think, yeah. How high a, a gloss you can get your shoes to. Right, I mean, if you have really high quality shoes and they're very beautiful, especially if they change the fashion slightly so that you also have, you know, the right shaped toe and all of that. It says, uh, you know, you're able to, you've got a shoe budget. That's what it says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've got a shoe budget, um, but I can outrun you. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. yes. Um, especially- we have a shoe budget, but I'm still going to be alive after this thing chases us down. Yes, that's true. Yes. That is true. Right. So, anyway, um, I don't know where to start. We have three errors to Uh, correct. We we better do that. Yeah. Oh, I know what one of them is. um, You want to start with yours? So, there's two. The one that you made is from farther ago, and then I made two in the last episode. One in the main episode. One in the Q and A. Go for it. Chronologically, I gotta. You just gotta. You gotta. I've gotta face the music. (laughs) All right. We're gonna call this correction a turn for the better. Mm, All right. Yes, Mm -hmm. we are. Whether you like it or not. Even the cat grimaced. He. That's the grimace. Grimacing at me. But (laughs) here's the thing. I put up a picture. I am not embarrassed by this picture at all. But we should oh, we should have shown the picture. We should have shown the picture. I thought it was a turn, a picture that I had taken um, in In the the Bahamas, in the Exumas. And uh, several astute 
bird watchers, biologists, mm -hmm. uh, alerted us that it was in fact a laughing gull and not a tern. Are you actually certain that it was no laughing gulls who contacted us? It was no laughing it was, matter. Was it all people or was it in fact some members <laughs> of the clade in question? Uh, given that everybody's spelling was better than mine, I think it was people and, you know, people think, of a certain breeding. You know, you've met parrots. I think they can spell just <laughs> fine. Um, can they now? I, you know, their pronunciation is often surprisingly good. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know about the spelling though. Yes. Um, okay, so that's right, your correction. So I, yep. I, 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 yep. I own this one. I just got it wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, and and the other two are sort of not in the same vein, but of the same sort of. Uh, it doesn't matter. These are these are not going to be errors that we are going to end up politically canceled ever. Oh, you'd say. be surprised. You know what you do? Am I inviting it now? You you mm -hmm. deliver these corrections right before takeoff, and then you'll find out hours later whether you've been canceled. Especially if you were ironic. That's the thing that does it, in my experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so we were talking about seed oils, and in the last Q and A, and I said that I thought grapeseed and rapeseed oil were the same thing, and they're not. Um, rapeseed is uh, uh, what is turned into what's called canola oil, and um, and grapeseed is in fact, as you had posited, from grapes. Seed, seeds of grapes. Yes, um, yes. All right. Well. Uh, so that's that's the that's the second correction, and then the third is that I I can't actually remember. I didn't go back and look, but for some reason I was invoking the fact um, that when in the field, when I when I used to spend you know many months at a time living in a tent on an island off of Madagascar, showering in a waterfall, et cetera, watching the sex lives of poison frogs unfold in front of me, as as some people did in the 90s, mostly me, uh, as I remember it, um, that I would take all the re reading material that I could get my hands on. Oh, I know, we were talking about then The Economist, uh, that my uh, wonderful field assistant's uh, parents would send us these care packages that occasionally included a block of cheese and often included all these back issues to The Economist. But one of the books that I had taken, I said, was Crime and Punishment, and I was so... Um, I was so mm. impoverished for uh, for the written language that I even read all of the troop movements, which would have been tough in Crime and Punishment, <laughs> there being, in fact, no troop movements in Crime and Punishment. And um, what I had actually, in high school, I had been lucky enough to have just an extraordinary, um, extraordinary great books curriculum and uh, English curriculum in high school, and had read um, a lot of Dostoevsky, um, but I'd never read any Tolstoy. And so I had taken War and Peace, never having read, in fact, any Tolstoy uh, to... Uh, to Madagascar, and I did in fact read all of the troop movements in War and Peace, not in Crime and Punishment, which uh, would have been a far less impressive thing to have done. Would you care to revisit those troop movements now? It's been a while. No. It's been a while. And I think I now I'm, I'm just like I'm looking past you at all of the books on this wall and knowing that we have many other walls in this house that are lined with books. I think I've got plenty at this point that I would perhaps over that. skip the troop movements. Yeah. Yeah. I perhaps. Can see it. I okay. Can see it. Those are our errors. Uh, Tolstoy, not Dostoevsky, uh, different kinds of seed oils, and laughing gulls, not turns. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, so we've been some places. Yeah, we have been some places. Um, very interesting to return to any sort of traveling post-COVID as it warms up here, as COVID is not quite banished by seasonality the way some of us expected it might be, which yeah. is ominous. Yeah. But... Nonetheless, we've been some places. You yeah. and I have been to well, so, we went to the Bahamas. We went to we. So I have been to four, and you have been to three, and together between us, we've been to five different on five different trips in the last month plus. Mm -hmm. We've already talked about the Bahamas some, which was uh, an extraordinary gift of a of a of a trip. Um, 
And then I was in Austin uh, for an event associated with the University of Austin, uh, which I think I mentioned uh, in a previous thing. But since we have seen you last, we have been to Santa Barbara. Uh, Zach and I have been to D.C. And then you have been to England, including London and Bath. Uh-huh. And um, let's just say a little bit about about each of these. And, and, um, and really, as you say, like what how odd it is to once again be going places and to feel like is this is this like 2019 is this like 2023 will this last one of the things that you said uh to me when we were in santa barbara so we were in santa barbara we were invited um to go um by bishop robert Barron, um who has a, a podcast and a youtube channel you know, he 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 and his people he is he is a um a catholic bishop in gosh i hope i get this right the archdiocese of los angeles i believe mm-hmm. uh who's based in santa barbara and who has been basically trying to get the word out and to interact with people not just who are already um in the fold um with a youtube channel from the very early days of youtube um, and we had, you know, off camera, we had some really wonderful conversations with with him and and some of the people whom he works with. Um, but he had his on his he had us on his show, Word on Fire, Word on Fire, Words on Fire, Word on Fire, uh, and it was it was remarkable. I can say mm-hmm. that if you um, got the description of his position in the church incorrect, I'm pretty sure he will forgive you. I can't tell you how I know that, but it just it's a sense that I have about him. Yeah, he's he's an extraordinary man. He really is. Uh and we my internet has stopped working. That's a really good moment for that to happen. Um we also spent an extra day down there. Uh you know, we could have flown down and just had dinner and and spent the night and gone to his studio and then you know we had lunch we had lunch with him as well and then flown right back but we actually spent an extra day so we got to see a little bit of Santa Barbara which I I went to UCSB briefly you know a couple per a couple of years right at the beginning of my college experience but UCSB is 12 miles or so outside of Santa Barbara and Santa Barbara is itself a a uh, very fancy little enclave in Southern California, but far enough outside of LA to really have reminded us almost not at all of LA. Yeah. It's like what LA wants to be. Yeah, it's really, I mean, you know, there's the vegetation on the hills, which is reminiscent, but I really find almost almost nothing about it yeah. similar to the feeling of LA. But one of the things you said was it felt like, um, it felt like a lot of the people were missing. Yeah. And now, so now I've had a couple of trips and I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, it's it's hard to separate because two things have happened. One, the population has been through something. We've all mm-hmm. been through something together. And then you and I have been through something that most people don't have an inkling of, yeah. weren't, you know, on the wrong end of and all of that. And so, you know, one has to separate. How is, is it, is the feeling that is so different here about what's here? Is it about me? What exactly is that? But there is mm-hmm. a, I would say for me, it has been, um, it has been delightful, eerie, and poignant all at the same time, right? To There's, travel again, to see places yes. you haven't been before. And I, I can't say, but I feel like this is some sort of, you know, uh, uh, an intermission right between mm-hmm, acts of mm-hmm. something which makes it all the more poignant because mm-hmm. 
you know, to the extent that we have just discovered how disconnected we can become from each other, how, you know, borders that never mattered before, like the Canadian border oh. to an American citizen, suddenly become impenetrable, right? And if you're Canadian and are unvaccinated, you are still um, denied many of your rights. Right. And so I feel a couple things. One, I feel that um, we are traveling in a transformed world mm -hmm. right and that you know people i almost felt people are traumatized mm -hmm. they're very relieved you know every so often you meet somebody who's been tortured right and they're out and you think you know you hear the stories of what they went through and you think i just don't even know how a person processes that but it is evident that a person can process it and they can live again and they can have joy and they can laugh and all of those things but mm -hmm. they are never the same right? right you've seen what what can be done to you mm -hmm. and this isn't that obviously we were not uh tortured but we were i think psychologically you know i, I wish we had you know 40 words for gaslit the way um, <laughs> inuits apparently do not really for snow but they, <laughs> they, the, the apocryphal accounting has it that they do right. we need 50 words for gaslit because this isn't all uh, the identical thing but right to the extent that we are being told that we must accept nonsense again and again on a dozen different topics and then punished if we start asking questions that is a kind of um it is a traumatizing phenomenon and i believe one can feel it as you travel someplace there yeah. is there's a tentativeness about people living yes I, I i absolutely agree and it's actually one of the things that was so um remarkable about bishop Barron and all of the people whom he is working with on his team that um you know we we were invited there as evolutionary biologists um to a, a group of people who have explicit faith for whom faith is absolutely central in their lives and it went in knowing um that on this point we do not see um the world through the same lens but on so many other points we do and that the one point on which you know which could be construed as utterly fundamental actually does not preclude us from conversing and agreeing and um coming to have great respect and admiration from for one another on so many other points as in fact i think we did reveal in the conversation certainly in the conversations that we had off camera but i hope in the conversation that we had on camera as well yeah i think it's really a lot has been lost recently, but mm -hmm. this is one of the things that has been, I think, achieved largely in the last five years. Mm -hmm. um, there is a way, and I, you know, I, I hope that we have significantly contributed to this. I think that may be the case, and that's part of why, you know, we've been invited to talk to people such as Bishop Barron. But there is a recognition amongst, especially people on the religious side, that. Um, it doesn't have to be that those on the scientific side are the enemy. And in fact, you know, there's a great deal of reason to think that that's not the case at all, right? And it just right. involves, you know, let's put it this way. When we talk about metaphorical truth, we are saying something that could be read hostily. Mm -hmm. If you were in, you know, if you were of a mindset to view that as an accusation, you certainly could. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you have, you know, a broad, I mean, and I think almost all, thinking religious people have to have a somewhat broad mindset because they're living under circumstances that don't look anything like the circumstances described in their texts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's there's a profound question in that. Did God 
intend you to live by rules that made a lot of sense in you know an ancient world in which nobody spoke the right. language you speak or is there some amount of flexibility is you know is the church a living entity because it has to be in order to adjust you know the religious yeah. uh, doctrine for the modern world and so what that means is not that we come to agreement but it's like you know sometimes people ask us you know they never say it in these terms but it's sort of like um you know, oh, you're an evolutionary biologist. Well, then how did life begin? You know, and it's like, well, I got to tell you, really don't know. You know, there are some things that make more sense and some things that make less sense. But that's one of those things that we might just never find out because right. there's not a whole lot of evidence. You know, the evidence is very indirect that it has been that has persisted for three and a half billion years. Um, so anyway, the point is, all of us have stuff at the very sort of very edge of the thing that we care deeply about that we may you know effectively have to be agnostic about mm -hmm. and that allows religious people and and scientifically focused people to you know talk about most issues without ever touching on it absolutely and i think um you know another thing that became more clear for me um associated with both um talking with bishop Barron and the other people whom we were talking with there and just then walking around talking with you in the aftermath of that considering what we had heard and what we had intuited from what we heard is that okay uh be be you in a secular landscape as we are or in a uh, religious landscape as they are uh, you are likely to have in every other regard all of the same diversity of opinions and uh, and demographics and so for instance uh, you know we part, you know part of you know, how what happened five years ago this week when Evergreen publicly blew up in a, a fury of misplaced outrage and you know absurd chaos um, was uh, about the so-called left having lost its grip on reality in part right and uh, you know there are there are those of us and we are certainly not alone who you know since before then have been saying actually the best way to go forward into a future that is as post-racial as possible is not to keep pointing out how how bad everyone is to one another based on race right like that's that's not going to be helpful um, and there are those of course who um, say that they're on the left who say that by saying that you are demonstrating that you're not on the left yourself and that you are yourself um, on the right Similarly, there will be those on the right who will say, look, if you're not, you know, if, if you are arguing for anything that sounds uh, like giving in to these people, then you're not really on the right and maybe you're one of them. And I'm like, that's, that's much more of a caricature of position because I don't, I don't hear that as much because we don't claim to be on the right because we're not. Um, but I get the sense that um, within the religious community, there are people, there are hard right and hard left and, you know, woke Catholics exist and um, very conservative Catholics exist. And there are tensions pulling people in both directions there, just as there are uh, for those of us who don't exist within the religious context, um, but are sort of in, in the wider world. And so, you know, the, the, the fight against woke ideology in favor of an actual liberal understanding of the world is not constrained to being one of either an explicit religious or an explicitly non-religious context. And that is part of the, the lesson of talking to people who would appear to have some fundamental difference with you is where you find all the other commonalities and all the other ways that you can actually cross lines and find ways to talk to them. 
Now, that description suggests something to me that I have not considered before. I'm sort of surprised because thematically it's very much like many thoughts that I've expressed. But I'm feeling at this moment, if you take our description of much of the orthodoxy that accompanied the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. as which we have described as medically woke. Yep. And, and you invoked that, actually, um, with Bishop Perrin, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I must say, I uh, invoked at the conference, too, and people resonate with this. Mm-hmm. For those of us who felt this, it, the analogy was awfully close. You know, it's the to, conference that you were at in Bath, which you haven't introduced yet. Yeah. explained yet. Um, but in any case, the question is, in one way, woke is a kind of contagion, and medically woke is a kind of contagion. Right? It is a set of ideas that spread horizontally for reasons that are not about the reality of what's being described. Okay? You know, contagious mimetic uh, cluster of ideas and assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess the question is all right, if you have two earth transforming contagions like this that come in quick succession, it raises the possibility that these things are downstream of a change in the rules, a loss of immunity, actually, Mm. that would allow such things to catch on where they would have been tamped down by normal homeostatic processes in your culture beforehand. And I guess you you could phrase that as a change in the rules or a release on the idea that rules are a good idea. And you know the the release on the idea that I, that rules themselves are a good idea is sort of how a lot of the the woke left is framing their preferences. You know, no more police, no more you know, no restrictions on people. You're just going to let them do what they're going to do. Um, so, but it's not libertarian. It's the opposite. That's that's the confusing thing about it. It mm-hmm. is the suspension of those rules, mm-hmm. and it is the imposition of these rules generated by some undemocratic, anti-democratic, yeah. anti-analytical mm-hmm. yep. mechanism that defines the thing, right? It's like suddenly you don't have free speech. Censorship is good, right? Mm-hmm. And what will be censored is now yep. the result of some murky process inside some corporation that happens completely arbitrarily and not only yeah. are, you know, say our it, truth or suffer the consequences. Yes. Or, mm-hmm. you know, certain people can say certain things, but other people can't say those same thing. I mean, it's just some sort of impossibly Baroque set of new rules mm-hmm. that you, that, you know, they're, they're defining characteristic is that they're never spelled out so that you could even follow them if you wanted to. Right. right? Or, or often there are mutually exclusive sets of rules, uh, which, you you have to be one of the chosen ones in order to use these ones. Um, but you know if if you're the riffraff, then then you're restricted to these. And, yeah. Um, and and those who would make jokes about recognizing hypocrisy are of course Nazis or something. Right. But yeah. it is you know, I guess the question is, it was supposed to be the case mm-hmm. that if you were going to have a major change in the way we governed ourselves, you would have to talk about it. You would have to convince a certain number of people that it was a good idea, so that the change that was necessary was made and then good or bad the new thing would happen Mm -hmm. and now it is all bypassed that process right Mm -hmm. and it's like you know i'm i'm constantly struck by the fact that i go into you know the dmv and i'm i'm asked my sex and there are only two choices and that works pretty well for me but i thought i was told pretty well (laughs) well enough i mean (laughs) 
let's put it this way. I, you know, my answer hasn't changed in all of the years I've had a driver's license. I have noticed. Right. And uh, my point would be that either that is a spectacular failure of the DMV to keep up on the latest science. <laughs> uh, you know. Or there's some bureaucracy that's oh, just God. stodgy enough not to have mm. been afflicted with this thing. I mean, I don't know what it means, but, you know, even... Go on. No, I... No. <laughs> I want to hear this. I, I, don't know what, I don't know what there is to say. I guess my feeling is we're just caught in a world where, you know, somehow the DMV is not constantly beset by protesters. Um as you might expect based on their transgression. Yeah, whereas almost any any survey that you fill out from a school or uh, I would think most sort of conferences, although probably not the conference you were just at, um, <clears throat> and certainly not the little conference that I was at for the University of Austin, but many, many such places will now offer you, um, you're not the full panoply of 8,000 possible choices, but you know at least you know a, a few and then another. And, you know, maybe yeah. a space to fill in your explanation for no, what you kind of other you are. You need male, female, and don't go there, girlfriend. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, as, as Douglas Murray has, has said, uh, and this, this is one of his, uh, what is it, one of his framings, one of his many framings that I really appreciate. Um, so much of those things are actually, it's not don't go there, girlfriend. It's look at me. Right? You know, oh, so, right. so, so many of the, of the neologisms, maybe that's not even the right word here, but um, because they don't actually describe a real thing, but like the 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 ways that we are told, and you know now they're doing it with the pride flag apparently, like there's not nearly enough colors in the world to describe all the ways to be, and so they're just adding lines and lines and chevrons and this that and the other to the pride flag, and it's it's about look at me, it's like this you know this is this is the way that people imagine they're finding meaning in the world, yeah. And um, you know, maybe just to, to go back, I'm thinking about our time just walking around, walking around and biking around a little bit in Santa Barbara and seeing people, like you said, it didn't seem like there were as many people as we would have expected, uh, but you know, we were walking in like a, a dining district where we stopped for cocktails one place and we stopped for dinner another place and people just looked like they were having a good time. They just, they looked... In, in in that place, no one was masked. There were families out. There were couples out. There were uh, older people out. There were all sorts of people of all the demographic descriptions out. And they just looked to be enjoying themselves. Yes, but I don't... Well, you, you and I may have perceived it differently. Mm-hmm. I did not feel that they were enjoying themselves um, without the thing that they had been through effectively haunting it okay. like yeah. like waiting mm-hmm. for the next shooter you know in the mm-hmm. meantime we're happy to be out here in the sun yeah but yeah. at any moment you know we, i think we have all lost yes. confidence that we will be you know free well, people choosing what we're going to do because we actually know better now yes and in, in which case i would hope that that doesn't that that awareness as that awareness fades it becomes more and more possible that it will happen again and soon Right. Uh, yeah. That uh, the, the the greater awareness we have, like, wait, many of us just signed off on having a bunch of our rights taken away. And then in trying to get them back, we are told that maybe they weren't ours to begin with or something. Like, what what was that? How did that happen? Right. How did that happen? And 
you know, one of the things that haunts me is we have to now live with each other. Let's say that the thing recedes and it doesn't return in the fall. And You're talking now not about the, uh, the human infrastructure, but the virus. Well, I'm talking about the radical decrease in our freedoms that we experienced, which we were told, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve and then it just kept extending and new mm-hmm. things were added and and all of that. So I don't want to limit something. this I don't want to limit this to, you know, COVID, mm-hmm. right? Um, I but to the extent that next fall arrives and we do not see a sudden emergency radical constraining of our freedoms. So you're talking about like this this, this, this northern temperate fall, September shows up. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, should that happen, then we will, for a time at least, have to go back to some sort of normal pattern of interacting, which is on the one hand great, except we have now seen what happens when the thing comes. And people have had very different reactions, and they've played very different roles, right? So we have to go back to being a functional society when, you know, some of us have, for example, been demonized as the cause of the pandemic, right? Pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? Knowing that your society can do that to you at the drop of a hat, and very wrongly, right? How exactly do we, you know, is there a mechanism? Is there a truth and reconciliation mechanism? I mean, forget the powers that be. Is there a truth and reconciliation mechanism that even allows us as peers to navigate something that we will trust as a relationship with people who have, you know, taken up arms against us as if we were exposing the world to to pathogens, right? I don't know. Um, but in any case... Uh, I, I think, I mean, I, I hate this, but I think I think our listeners will hear me struggling to describe some visceral experience of traveling and then interacting with people um, that just as pleasant as it is, it's not normal. And yep. I, you know, mm-hmm. and some of that is undoubtedly my perception, but some of that is likely not. Some of that is the fact that people have been through something profound and they are grappling with how to understand it. And one of the things that it was very aggressive about doing was disrupting our ability to make sense of things and disrupting our ability to find our way to a consensus about what took place by discussing it with each other, right? Mm -hmm. What took place is going to be something that will be told to us and we will either accept it or reject it. And the people who reject it are the bad people, right? That's, that's the pattern. And um, so anyway, I, I don't know where we are, but I definitely, um, it is, it is hard to walk around even in a perfectly delightful place. I found Bath surprisingly delightful. I was not, maybe it's just my ignorance and some hole in my education, but I did not realize what Bath was before I got there. And upon arriving, you know, I discovered a, a beautiful place with ancient roots and very pleasant to walk around and quite clean and, you know, just a really interesting part of... You thought a place named Bath would not be clean? Uh, Well, to be honest with you, I did not know that Bath was a... I mean, not all baths are clean, but um, I did not know that that was a literal reference to something. Um, And so I thought it was just some UK township. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's not. It's a a 
tourist center. It's a so do you. I, I I do want to talk about DC a bit, but I can I can save that. I can go out of order chronologically if you want to talk about the conference first. We we can do it either way. I mean, mostly at the moment, I'm just remarking on the experience of being elsewhere and um, being haunted by the appearance of normalcy or semi-normalcy and the feeling of not normal mm -hmm. um so what do you think dc or it's up to you all right let's talk about dc we'll do it chronologically okay uh so the morning after we got back from santa barbara uh zach and i flew to dc and uh i i did not prepare a full sort of explanation of what what all we were doing there. But uh, Zach, I hope that you will correct me if my very brief uh, summary here is is wrong. Okay. Uh, so last year, Zach led his uh, high school rocketry team to winning the national uh, rocketry competition, TARC, which stands for the American Rocketry Competition, I think? Challenge. Challenge. Uh, and what's that? It might be challenge, might be competition. Okay. Uh, and <clears throat> Uh, the, uh, the, the founder of the, of the high school rocketry team that, uh, Zach was led to, uh, led to winning last year, uh, had graduated the year before. He was a mentor on the team, um, last year and he had really, and then, um, largely passed the baton to Zach, um, created all sorts of remarkable, um, active programs, uh, with regard to the rocket. So they've got active descent and they've got active ascent. Is that right, Zach? Or am I saying that wrong? Yeah. Um, I mean, I know, I know that active ascent is a thing, but I, I thought that there might be a special, a special language for it. Um, and so there's a tremendous amount of, of, um, both coding and circuit, circuit board building and also hardware design. And, um, in this case, at the very last minute, there was a you know, parachute design and, you know, just a tremendous amount of, of work that put in that allowed for a tremendous amount of precision. And, um, and we went out to, um, the Plains, Virginia? Is that what it was called? The Great Meadow? Have you described what the precision is for at the competition tests? The competition tests, it changes every year. Um, and um, there are specs around um, how how large the rocket can be. It can't be over. It was like 650 grams. I make that up. Okay. And this year it had to hold two eggs and they had to land safely. And then for the finals, there were two, uh, two launches. Um, the first of which had to be, so correct me if I'm wrong, Zach, I'm doing this for memory. I think to, um, 610 feet. See, of course, 810 feet and have a flight time between 41 and 43 seconds. 40 and 43 seconds. And then the second flight uh, had to go to 850 feet and be between 42 and 45 seconds. 860, 42 and 45 seconds. Okay. And uh, for each um, foot that you're off of the, uh, of the apogee of the flight, um, you get a point. And for every second that you're outside of the window, you get five points and a score of zero is perfect. And so you want the lowest score possible. And, um, and their first their flight um can i can i interject a couple things here of course of course okay so yeah. the key thing is that in order to reach that height you could basically if you imagined a perfectly static world right you could figure out uh what weight and drag 
coupled with the particular motor, these motors are highly standardized, they're not perfect, mm -hmm. would get you that height and approximately that descent time based on how big a parachute. And the, under, with, you know, as you say, with no wind, under certain pressure. Right. It's not, uh, a, it's barometric not a good metric system. Pressure, pressure, like if you've designed the rocket and are flying in exactly the same conditions under the same so you can altitude, imagine. all this. Yeah. The same rocket will deliver different results based on uh, all sorts of all sorts of things. But a rocket that can measure where it is, right, can actually, as it is going to exceed its uh, flight ceiling, can add drag by kicking out some brakes, right? And as it's descending, you have, Zach, your current rocket has uh, motors that... No, it has uh, parachute. Oh, you're using exclusively the parachute reefing. So mm -hmm. the, uh, last year they had uh, propellers that could add uh, drag to slow the descent and it was too heavy um, this year. and this year they used a system in which the parachute could be pulled back in to speed the descent or let back out in order to slow the descent so you can imagine a rocket that knows how high it is right and uh can deploy these things is capable of getting much closer to hitting those numbers perfectly um, than a rocket in which it's just simply based on um, the basic parameters of the rocket and the motor and, you know, cross your fingers. Yep, absolutely. So having both active ascent and active descent systems on board. And, and um, another one of the rules is that you cannot interact with anything about the rocket from the ground. So you can't be, you know, in, inputting any information. Um, once, once it's launched, it's launched and it's going to do what it's going to do. Um, so uh, as last year's winner, uh, they went first. And uh, they hit 858 feet uh, in 45 seconds, which would have been a nearly perfect um, flight. It would have been a, a two-point flight, which is extraordinary. Um, but the first flight was supposed to be for the 810. So, and that was due to one little piece of code not being put into comment rather than um, being... being um, not not being commented, and so it ran rather than the eight ten um, script running. So let me make that slightly clearer. If you're programming and you have a parameter that you might swap out, so the program remains the same, but the parameter swaps out, you can comment out. You can turn into a comment, which the thing that reads the program ignores the value that you're not using anymore, and you can put in your new value. And in this case, a punctuation error left the old value active so the rocket performed yeah. exactly yeah. as the rocket <laughs> thought it should perform um, but it was the wrong flight so yeah. completely heartbreaking they obviously didn't win they didn't come close um but uh, uh and i've asked Zach to um to take me out and maybe you out this weekend i want i want to see the two flights um and you know they're the, the rocket did exactly what it was supposed to do, and it did so with elegance and precision. And um, Zach talked to some of the other um, some of the other people who were there afterwards, um, um, who were just geeking out over the engineering and the rocketry. And it's it's just a joy to see people actually really caring deeply about um, physical systems and engineering and problem solving and going, oh, I had an idea like that, but I wasn't sure how to bring it to realization. And having this go back and forth between people in real time, it's just like, this is what discovery and engineering and uh, and science also is supposed to be about. And it's amazing and, you know, a heartbreaking result at one level, but um, really, really amazing another. As a result, Zach and I were there. Okay, so we were there and um, we took, uh, there, there are a couple things worth commenting about the trip other than uh, the TARC competition. 
which is probably redundant Tark competition. It's like having steak with those shoes, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, Soup du jour of the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, one is uh, we were out, I don't know, an hour sort of east of D.C., and we went to get some breakfast in Warrington, Virginia. We don't, we, neither of us, Zach had never been in the D.C. area at all. Uh, I have been a few times once as a kid and a couple times more recently. And... Um, and I just looked up like breakfast near me and it was, you know, ways away from where we were, but the closest to that looked reasonable. And so we drove on Saturday morning into the town of Warrington and we couldn't make the left that Google Mouse was telling me I should make at the rental car uh, because it was blocked. There's a police blockage and we had to drive through one side of the street was Black Lives Matter protest and the other side of the street was an All Lives Matter protest. And uh, it was fascinating to drive through. And then I realized after we had parked in this sort of quaint little town in the middle of what seemed to me like nowhere, oh, we're going to actually have to walk back through this this protest. And that sh- that'll be interesting. And, and I wrote about this also in this evergreen piece that I wrote for Natural Selections this week. Um, we ended up on the side of the street just because of where the restaurant was uh, with the All Lives Matter protesters and talked to a couple of them. And while we were talking to a couple of them, one of the other All Lives Matter protesters started just kind of throwing a fit and yelling. And he was standing in the street and he was yelling at the Black Lives Matter protesters. And Zach and I were saying to the two people we're talking to who were very calm uh, and you know, were making, frankly, in many ways, a lot of sense, said, that's not helping. That's not helping anyone here, but it's certainly not helping you send the message uh, that you're actually interested in everyone moving forward into the future with some, um, you know, some, some freedom and justice. Uh, but of course, all movements have their unhinged people. And in this case, the unhinged person happened to be on the side of All Lives Matter. And that was, it's unfortunate whenever it's, it shows up anywhere, but that, w- that was the case there. Uh, we talked uh, to, these, uh, to these people and they were, they seemed, you know, honorable and um, they, were, they were faithful. They, uh, in fact, one of them was quoting scripture at me, which I didn't find compelling as an argument for why all lives should matter. But, you know, any more than I find um, appeals to authority when it's from the CDC compelling on their own. But it was fascinating to also observe that if you just took like nice mugshots, like if you tried to do like profile portraits of the people, the Black Lives Matter protesters looked more like people that I see in the coffee shops around here who I imagine I might have more in common with, who you know probably think about eating locally and eating organic and probably want to spend a lot of time outside and, and all of this. And, uh, and yet the things that they were chanting were the usual Black Lives Matter chants that I know to either be not what they claim or to actually be inconsistent with other things that they chant, given what's been on their website and you know, and much of which they've taken down. Uh, but you know, all of this is happening in a sort of a, a, an exurb of DC, you know, an, a, an hour out of DC, like very far outside. Uh, but in a context that I didn't, I never foresaw, I never imagined that we would run into Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter protesters uh, in Warrington, Virginia. And then we went back, the whole team went back and, you know, I and one of the other parents, the other parent who was an, an actual um, chaperone and the, the team, <clears throat> like the person from the school who's like the mentor sort of, um, <clears throat> went back to like a, what was it called? Carousel, Zach? The, the, the sweet shop? 
um, which was its own cultural extravaganza. Uh, and I thought, oh, this just reminds me of nothing I've ever seen before. This is like, this is the place where everyone in the town comes for Saturday night and gets desserts that I don't recognize even as food. And none of the other sort of Portland kids were like, I don't, it's, it's a deep fried Twinkie, is it? Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to eat that. <laughs> um, uh, so the whole thing was a little bit like traveling to a different country in some regards. And then to have sort of people from a different country, but still with the Black Lives Matter and the All Lives Matter people facing off against one another and yelling at one another. Okay. So there was that. And then the next day we went, um, I'd gotten us an Airbnb for the night in DC and we went first to Arlington, which was super easy to be in. You know, Arlington had all the little cafes and the good cappuccinos and all the stuff that, uh, you know, that, that, I think I like, and it was just easy to walk with. They had great bagels, right, Zach? Um, and then in DC, we had, um, let's see, I sent you three pictures, right, Zach? Yeah, you want to show um, first SCOTUS? Um, so we walked by the Supreme Court, uh, and it was on a, this was a Monday morning. So I guess this is the next. This is the next morning. It was a gray morning. There, there was clearly a lot of signs of um, there having been protests over the weekend. But uh, while we were there, there's just one lone protester uh, who had a backpack on from which she was blaring some sort of very angry music, and I can't read it from here. But her sign says something like, "You know, she's she's pro-choice." Right. Um, but then the other signs, which again I can't read. I wonder if you could put it on our little screen here, Zach. No, you can't. Well, maybe you can. So I, I don't remember what's on the signs, but yeah, the one that's signs. most, yep. First sign says, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. Okay. Um, are you interested in the very odd signs? Yeah. So just, just tell us what one of them, one of them says here. Okay. Trans rights start at conception. And gay rights start at conception. And then I think the one lying on the ground says something like, um, atheists for life uh, and all three of those signs are just not what we we're expecting and they speak to some protests that i've yet seen yet to see any evidence of elsewhere and the idea you know trans rights begin at conception this causes so many errors to be thrown right away that it's really hard to even know what to think and you know maybe the point was Whoever whoever designed that sign and was carrying it was trying to throw errors in the in the minds of the of pro choice protesters, um, or they were just themselves very confused, or I don't even know what. But this you know this is the Supreme Court of the United States. Everyone, that's a perfect perfect uh, indicator of the level of confusion of the moment. Almost no matter what explains it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess actually the night before. Then um, the, the next picture, Zach, is of the rainbow over the White House, uh, which we saw, uh, if you can show it, yeah. Um, we were, we had gone to the um, National Portrait Gallery, which was uh, fascinating. There's a Watergate exhibit at the moment, which is um, quite worth seeing. And we walked through the presidential portraits and we're learning some things. I had been there back right when uh, the Obama portraits had, had gotten there and they're now on the move. So they weren't there. Um, uh, so it went, uh, so, so there weren't, so Barack Obama wasn't there. And there is, I imagine, a sort of temporary one for Trump there. But the, uh, the bios, they have 
one or two paragraph bios for all of the presidents. And the farther back you go, um, the the clearly less politicized, <clears throat> excuse me, they are, but they all seem pretty straightforward. They all seem to pretty much describe the facts until you get to Trump. And I wish I'd taken a picture or, you know, I, I could tell you exactly what it said. But, uh, you know, as, as we've said here before, um, I'm not a fan of Trump. I didn't vote for him. I didn't uh, vote for the other guy in the last election either, but um, I, did, I, I haven't voted for him. Uh, and uh, the description of him on in the National Portrait Gallery was so politicized and so not reflective of actually a description of what it is that he did as president. And any fair analysis of the things that he accomplished includes some things that all Americans should be able to get behind. No such things are mentioned. And what is mentioned is January 6th. And I'm not, do you remember, Zach, if the word insurrection is used? I don't remember. And I don't want to, I don't want to misquote. I don't remember exactly the word insurrection. Yeah. So that, that struck me as a tragic disappointment in one of our most important national museums to have it be politicized in this way when this is supposed to be about portraits of presidents. Yeah, in fact, it's um, decidedly unwelcoming of some large fraction of the electorate, which Half you know, the electorate. This, has become, yep. this has become the nature of our system, which is, at least on the one side, there is a a sort of sense that people who disagree are not entitled to the full rights of citizens. They're not entitled to have their president um, objectively memorialized. You know, it's it's preposterous. How could this? How could this possibly end well? Yeah, no, it's it's not it's not okay. It's not okay. Um, so from there, we we walked and we walked to dinner, and then we got sort of stuck in a thunderstorm, and we we uh, got told we needed to leave from in front of the White House, and it seemed like something interesting might happen. And so Zach and I hung out there for a while, and nothing interesting happened, but we did see this rainbow, and then we and then it, um, we stayed there long enough to miss the sunset into onto the Lincoln Memorial, but we got there um, a few minutes after the sunset, and that's that's just a, an extraordinary monument. Um, and we also went to. God, what it's called? What's that crazy museum called, Zach? Uh, um, <laughs> sorry, I, I hate to do this right here. It's the Udvar Hazy Center, the basically the overflow museum for the um, Air and Space Museum, which was closed right now. But it's got it's got a Concorde, it's got the Enola Gay, it's got a Blackbird, it's got uh, some of the very early planes. It is oh, it's got the Discovery, the space shuttle, mm. the whole Discovery, uh, and. Uh, I, it was hard to find political signage in the Udvar Hazy Center, uh, which was, um, outside of DC. Uh, and that, that was an extraordinary museum, highly recommended Wait, as well. Conservatives are still welcome in the aviation museum? Uh, apparently. That must um, be some kind of oversight. Maybe may due to, uh, the recognition that, um, they too use physics. I'm not willing to concede any such thing. <laughs> So um, just just a couple more things um, about our experience in D.C. Uh, the last morning that we were there, we went, well, we went past SCOTUS. I really wanted to see the Library of Congress, and it turns out they weren't open that day. So we got to the door of the Library of Congress, and they weren't open. Um, but we did go to the um, 
Museum of African American History, which um, I had gone to in more depth a few years back and found it really extraordinary. And then we also went to a museum that um, none of us had been to before. And now Zach and I have been. We went to the Holocaust Museum. And so that the last picture, Zach, for you to show is something that many people who who are aware <clears throat> of the museum and and of and of the history know. But um, these are some just some some of the millions, I think, of shoes um, of the people who were killed um, during the Holocaust, just in piles and piles and piles. And there's something about the numbers uh, that the human mind can't grasp, and seeing actual shoes that were worn by actual people who ceased to exist due to uh, evil acts of genocide uh, really takes the breath away. Yes, I have not been to that museum, but I very much hope to go. Uh, hope to go makes me sound like I doubt I will get to DC again. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, I'm looking forward to going. Yeah. So Zach and I got back from there uh, late, 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 and the very next day you flew. Yeah. <laughs> to England. To England. Yeah. Um, yeah. So why don't I? I'll just say that um, England felt very different. I've been to England quite a number of times. It has not been so exciting having seen it many times. This time it was uh, quite poignant, I think, as a result of having been disconnected from the world and just simply um, seeing seeing a culture that is surprisingly different. I mean, you don't, I think one forgets how different it is, um, was remarkable. But okay, I went to Bath and, and this conference was um, a conference of primarily COVID dissidents of one form or another. It was organized um, by Tess Laurie and her group, whose name I always forget. Um, but in any case, uh, I was doing some presenting at this conference and I was doing some hosting of panels. The conference was quite uh, eclectic in terms of who who was there. I did get to meet quite a number of uh, people who, strangely, you and I have been in battle alongside many of these people, but have only met some of them uh, in person. And it was almost indescribably, um, what's the word? It was uh, comforting mm -hmm. just to meet them in person, right? Garrett Vandenbosch was there. Ryan Cole, who actually doesn't live so far from us. He's in Idaho. Um, He's a pathologist. He's a pathologist. I will return to him shortly. I, I found what he had to say remarkable. Um, uh, I got to meet uh, Phil Harper, who we had not met before. So in any case, oh, and uh, I had not met Tess Laurie. We certainly mm -hmm. um, interacted over Zoom. But anyway, to be in the company of all of these people who have been fighting in parallel against the same amorphous well-resourced, diabolical enemy, and I, I hate to describe it in those terms, but the way it behaves leaves no doubt on the part of those who have been targeted by it that there is a something. I don't know how it works. I don't know how many organizations are collaborating, but you know, we do know that uh, Gavi exists, the Trusted News uh, Initiative exists. <coughs> we know that the CDC has dictated a certain amount, the WHO. Um, so anyway, there are these organizations and they clearly share a perspective and they clearly target people who step out of line. Um, so in, in any case, 
something indescribable about meeting these people. Um, oh, Neil Oliver was there mm -hmm. also. I must say that was uh, quite cathartic to meet him in person and, uh, you know, look him in the eye and um, to just, you know, the, the joy of discovering that such a person exists. For those of you who don't know Neil Oliver, you probably do know him. You've probably seen a uh, soliloquy or two um, distributed on Twitter. Um, but he's really he's really a lovely person. But in any case, I just wanted to give a few um, of the insights uh, from the conference. I think the one that struck me most was hearing from people who have been vaccine injured, being able to talk to them privately. So there were presentations, but you know, also being able to talk to these people privately and just get a sense not only for what they've been through um, medically but maybe even more importantly, what they have been through in the aftermath of having their injuries. Um, like socially. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are a lot of things about this last year that have been utterly jaw-dropping. But I think the one that sticks with me most, the thing that I am going to have the hardest time uh, forgetting is the gaslighting of people who did what they were asked to do mm -hmm. and were injured in the process. Now let's say- And then were treated as despicable liars or, or non-existent, right? Right. Like you, how, how, how dare you have been injured? How dare you talk about it? How dare you bring this to anyone's attention, don't you see that you're part of the problem? Right. And and the insanity is so deep that in general, one of the things that these people most frequently hear is that they are anti-vaxxers, <laughs> right? These are people who took the vaccine and were injured by it and then are accused of being anti-vaxxers. They are effectively denied care. They are told that it's in their minds. Mm -hmm. They're doctors who do know how to treat them, Paul Merrick in particular, um, delivers a very compelling, I mean, you know, tears in his eyes. He says, I'm faced with these people. I know how to treat them, but I'm not allowed to, right? His hands have been tied. To hear that story, I guess the point is, what kind of civilization? I mean, even, let's say that the vaccines were exceedingly safe, right? And the occasional person got severely injured right? As far as I'm concerned, that person is a hero, right? They got the, the short straw in a thing that they did for everybody. Everybody did their part. These people came up with the short straw. They are entitled to an extraordinary level of care. They're entitled to better care than most people have because their injury comes from doing something. They participated in something that was ostensibly to foster our collective well-being you know it feels a little bit um maybe this is a bad analogy but uh, as you're talking it reminds me of um how vietnam vets were treated when they came back <laughs> it's exactly the thought right yeah. Yeah. you sign up yeah. because your government says your country needs you mm -hmm. something terrible happens to you you need care you come back you can't your mind doesn't accept that you are now at peace and you can't live a normal life. How is it that these people are not receiving extraordinary care? And why do we not compare how these people are treated 
Like with, all, sorry, all war vets, but I, the Vietnam War vets were pre- was, treated particularly brutally it by was particularly society. Particularly right? bad because yeah. society had no patience for that war by the end. Right. Right. But nonetheless, it seems to me that at the point on the front end of their recruiting effort where they're saying, hey, your country needs you, sign up, it's really important, right? Yeah. The first question ought to be, well, how are you going to treat me if it doesn't go well? Yeah. What happens if. What happens if I do what you say and I end up severely harmed by it? Are you still going to be there? And if the answer to that question is no, then the answer is sorry. That's not the deal. If my country needs me, then my country should take care of me if it doesn't go well, right? Right. And so these people responded to the call. These people, now you're talking about the people who are the vaccine injured. The vaccine injured responded to the call. And frankly, if you... We are going to be blamed, despite the fact that you and I are vaccine enthusiasts, that a book written before COVID happened lists vaccines as one of the three great medical discoveries, right? Though That's who we are, and we're demonized as anti-vaxxers, sure. right? How many anti-vaxxers do you create when you injure people with a vaccine and then pretend they're not hurt, Right. How many people is that going to drive, rightly drive away, mm-hmm. analytically drive away? I'd be crazy if to take that If they're lying about this, what else are they lying about? Right. And if, if they're, they're treating me like this over what is happening now, who else has experienced what that I don't know about? Yes. Hmm. It's very, very safe. Really? Totally safe? Yes, totally safe. And if it turns out that it hurts me, does that mean you, that you will then take care of me? No. We're going to treat you like garbage. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, yeah. I, I can't believe that we can't just simply see how the dots connect, right? So yep. I, I guess I, I, I am beyond fed up, right? Yeah. The, the gaslighting of people who spoke up was terrible. The gaslighting of people who did what they were asked and were harmed by it, and some of them severely harmed, right? That is unconscionable. It's unconscionable. And I, I guess I would ask, others, right? Those who just wish this topic would go away. Are you okay with that? Right? Yeah. Maybe you took the vaccine. Maybe it went well. Are you okay with people who made the same choice that you did and will never live a normal life again being treated like this by the governments that asked them to do it, that asked you to do it? You're really okay with that? I can't imagine how you could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. I will also say, I think Ryan Cole, the pathologist, has a special role to play. And I'm troubled that there seems to be only one of him, right? Only one pathologist who is speaking publicly about what he's seeing. Right. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I haven't When you were talking to me, as you know, you just came home yesterday, um, as you know. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, but when you were trying to, when you were sort of giving me a, a quick overview of, of, of what you had seen and experienced and everything there, uh, my question to you was, where are all the other pathologists? Right. And I don't think we know the answer to that question. Um, it is especially troubling. You know, it could be that you wouldn't, the pathologists aren't seeing anything or aren't seeing anything yet, but that can't be right. Right. So what is, I don't, I don't know to what degree you're free to talk about what you understand from Dr. Cole. Well, uh, if, if, if you are, you might share some of... So for those of you who haven't thought about what a pathologist is, yeah. a pathologist is a, a doctor who sees specimens, but not patients, right? 
this is somebody whose specialty is looking. I hope, Ryan, if I have this slightly wrong, that you'll uh, gently reach out and I will correct it. But um, that basically the point is, this is you know how a radiologist is a doctor you never see. The doctor looks at the scans or the MRIs or whatever it is that you've got and says, aha, that shadow there is a something or other. Well, the pathologist is somebody who's looking. It's like blood cultures and tissue cultures. Tissue cultures, biopsies, yeah. all sorts of stuff. So they see this. And what this means for a pathologist, you know, Ryan Cole has many years of experience behind the microscope, right? He's there for the beginning of COVID. He's there for the vaccine program and what he's well, seen. And he's, and he's there decades before. Right. right. Like, I don't know how old he is, but at least like m- many, many years before. Many years before. Yeah. So in that time, you will see transitions in how many of this type of cancer you see and that type of cancer and this type of dysfunction, that type of dysfunction. And so the point is... This is a doctor who sees way more patients than most. So if a doctor, you know... Because he doesn't see whole people, he sees samples. Right, exactly. And so, you know, he has a much larger data set than most people do. And he's in a position to see change in a way that if you were a doctor in an office seeing patients, you might see that change, but you wouldn't necessarily know whether it was noise, right? Just a... Sample size is lower, it's just harder to know. It's just harder to know. Right. So he's seeing all these things, including... Lots of cancers, very sudden cancers, right? Cancers that were dormant and then suddenly are in stage four, this kind of thing. Um, You know, and he is profoundly altered by looking at the change in what patients are facing and his own profession and their ignoring of these patterns, which um, I don't know what we do about it because with one pathologist, it's very hard for this point to be successfully made, but um, it's a very, his report is very stark and it is consistent with the other doctors, right? There's there are a lot of doctors at this conference, including, you know, Malone. So did you did you specify the, the timing? Maybe I was thinking about something else you were saying, but did you specify are you free to specify the timing of when he starts seeing uh, an explosion of, uh, of of cancers? I don't think I know, although he has spoken about it publicly. There's mm-hmm. actually um, a, an interview clip that people will probably have seen on Twitter where he's seated, I believe he's seated with books behind him, and he is discussing these cancers that he is suddenly seeing uh, emerge. The question is, is this attributable to COVID or vaccines or both? Um, I believe, well, I'm going to leave that to Ryan. I'm going to interview him. But, oh, um, great. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a, it's a must do. Mm-hmm. Um, he is certainly seeing a lot of pathology that he believes is vaccine in nature, and he would be in a position to know because the difference between 2020 yep. and 2021 is the vaccines. Yep. That's right. Um, <clears throat> all right. So that was a, uh, an important upshot. Mm-hmm. I will say for those of you who are inclined to demonize this as some kind of an anti-vax conference, I will, I think ultimately all of the video from the conference is going to emerge. So you will be interested on the panel that well, I believe it was the first panel and it was uh, moderated by Majid Nawaz. Um, there was an interesting back and forth between, um, it started out between Del Bigtree and Garrett Vandenbosch. And what happened was Del Bigtree actually queried the audience on the panel about whether they felt that vaccines had an important role to play in public health. And um, Robert Malone, Garrett Vandenbosch, and myself, Robert Malone and Garrett Vandenbosch, both being vaccinologists and me being an evolutionary biologist, all said yes. 
Um, and we had a back and forth with Dell about it. So this was not an anti-vax conference. What this was is a conference in which people who are uh, vaccine hesitant and from before COVID uh, were in dialogue with people who are very pro-vaccine and very troubled by what's happened uh, during COVID. Anyway, I think that that's really interesting. I will also say it was one of the things people in the audience uh, responded to. I must have had... 25 or 30 people come up to me and say they were really glad to see that exchange, right? They really thought that this needed to be aired because it's too easy for uh, camps to become entrenched and the dialogue needs to happen. Um, So that was really important. Um, People are uh, eager to see respectful disagreement. They, and it's not, you know, it's not bloodthirst. It's I've had no exposure to it. And I know that there are reasons. There are reasons that you might land on either side of this. And I really want to hear what smart people have to say in response. I want to build up my model and build up my arsenal, if you will. And maybe, you know, using that kind of language isn't helpful here. But, you know, people act, this is how you learn how to, com- how to compose arguments and how to engage with people when you do run into people who, who don't agree with you, is by hearing how other people do it. And you can do it from scratch. You know, you, you can't figure it out from scratch, but it is every time you or I or we have been involved in something like that where there's actual disagreement and it doesn't just result in yelling, uh, people are appreciative. They're appreciative and they are also appreciative of the sense that, uh, I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but watching people respectfully disagree over substance, analytical substance, is reassuring because so many people have had the experience of, you know, expressing, let's say, skepticism of the COVID vaccines and then having all hell break loose in their life, right? That just simply seeing that actually at the end of the day, they're not crazy and this is an analytical question is super... Uh, important, right? That's a reaction shot where Zach leaves the camera on you while I'm talking so that we can see how you feel about me, which is cool because I think you feel pretty good about me. But um, okay, that's good. Um, So, okay, I wanted to add a couple things. Um, The Garrett Vandenbosch feature of this was important and I feel certain based on the way people commonly Yes, we have a helicopter problem. I don't know if you can... I think that's actually an airplane, but... Yeah, that actually is. But we do have a helicopter problem. Yeah. Yeah. I don't love the fact that we have a helicopter problem. We never used to. It'll go away. You know, breeding season, they'll fly off somewhere else. Um, All right. So, Garrett Vandenbosch predicted on this program, I will point out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't the first place he had done it, but he predicted that we would have a pandemic of variants. Yes. He also predicted that the severity of those variants uh, would go up, and he predicted that it would move in the direction of younger people. Mm. Now, I believe he was right on two of these three counts. The bracketing two, right? Like um, the middle one. Uh, the variants certainly proliferated, yeah. um, and the uh, level of contagiousness went up. The level of severity seems to have gone down. Okay, so you just split up his second one into two parts. So three out of four, perhaps. Your virulence has gone up, but severity has gone down. And then the third one, as you described it, which is actually the fourth one, um, 
in, in the new variants is that you think that you are seeing, and I also think that I'm seeing, although I've seen no data on it per se, is that this is affecting young people more and more. Yeah. Um, yeah. The virulence is actually the severity. So it's the contagiousness that's gone up. The virulence has gone down, um, at least so far, which doesn't mean that it will continue to. But uh, in any case, the, the point I want to make is Pete, Garrett took a lot of crap for his view that the vaccine program was going to cause a proliferation of variants and that it was going to make the thing more contagious and more damaging. And my point would be, you don't get out of it, right? Now that he's turned out to be right, when somebody has a prediction that turns out to be right, you don't get to make a special pleading. Now, it's possible that he could have gotten there by accident, but unless you predicted better than he did, right? Then the question is, what model did you use to predict that? And what does it say is coming next? And the problem is that the model that he used to predict that has some very dire things to say about what's coming, mm -hmm. right? More variants, vulnerability amongst the vaccinated primarily, and um, severe disease. So nobody, including Garrett, knows whether that is going to happen. But I would say when somebody who has done as good a job of predicting the course of the pandemic as Garrett says that, we don't have a choice but to listen, right? This is this is somebody who has demonstrated that he's got a model that works better than, than the field. And mm -hmm. um, uh, I would say I am at least paying very close attention to what he has to say. It's um, It's quite frightening. And hopefully, hopefully he's uh, incorrect about it, but nonetheless, um, I don't know. Buckle your seatbelts, I guess. Oh boy, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll just say it's um, six oh five. Yep. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a a lot of other things that aren't exactly in this territory that we were thinking about doing, but we're going to be back in less than forty eight hours. So I yep. think we should save some of okay. what we were talking about. But but you may not be done yet. Um, with, no, we with can, what you were on. We can. We can leave it there for the moment. I may return to a couple of topics from the conference later on, but I do feel like we've we've more or less set the stage. And uh, most of what I was hoping to accomplish was to give people a sense of um, what the feeling was being mm -hmm. there. Um, uh, and anyway, I hope you all find uh, comfort. There was a lot of comfort for people who attended as as uh, spectators or as participants, just simply in being in the company of that many people who. Uh, we're at least holding on to sanity. Yeah. Well, and I guess we probably should have said at the top of the hour too, I hope this isn't a secret, but it's about not to be, um, is that you recorded several, in fact, five um, Dark Horse episodes while you were there with people who were there, some of whom you've mentioned here. Each one um, darker than the last. Um, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which are going to be released uh, weekly on, on Tuesdays, I think, for, for the next, well, five weeks. Um, so those, I'm looking forward to hearing them. And uh, I think you were um, you were very enthusiastic about the conversations as you were having them. Yes, I will also say I recorded an unheard episode with Freddie Sayers while I was in London on mm -hmm. my final day. That, I think, is out today. Or if it's not out today, it'll be out tomorrow. So you might check that out. That was pretty good. He, he uh, you know, he pulled no punches. But um, anyway, I thought the interview was, was what was good. And I think people will enjoy that too. Wonderful. Um, so I, for, I forgot to bring it up, but on, on Saturday at uh, noon 30 Pacific time on Saturday, we'll be back and we'll do an episode then and we'll do a Q&A, which we haven't done in a while. 
Um, and we'll also bring up the uh, the French version of A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which just got delivered to us uh, yesterday, and we'll show Très that. Bon. Uh, très bon, indeed. And um, and the Spanish version's about to come out. We haven't not received those yet, but. Um, but uh, for those we have been hearing from people uh, who are eager for the book in both French and Spanish, and there are other the, the Lithuanians coming out. There's I don't all think sorts of stuff. Eager for the book in both French and Spanish. I mean, I am. Really, you're I mean, not going to read them simultaneously. I would not. Honestly, probably going to read either of them because neither my French nor my <laughs> Spanish is that good. But I'm sure it would improve if I tried to read both my Spanish and my French would improve if I tried to read our book in Spanish and French. Anyway. Um, Oh, there's probably a lot more to say here, but I think we are going to sign off and um, say thank you for for being here. Again, subscribe to this, that, and the other channel, this being you know YouTube and Odyssey and the Dark Horse Podcast Clips channel. And uh, like the episode, share the episode, share clips, uh, get, get the word out if you're enjoying this. And we know that many people are because we hear from a lot of you and we appreciate that. In the meantime, until we see you next, which is, again, in less than 48 hours, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Fight the good fight. <laughs>